1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
2: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your
1: Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today is Saturday, so it's time to go into the old vault. This episode originally published on June 23rd, 2020, and it's about the invention of fireworks.
2: Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is ideal since uh, tomorrow in the United States. It's July 4th, a time when there are traditionally fireworks going off in the sky. So here, let's uh, enjoy, let's explore the history and the origin of fireworks.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: And today we're doing fireworks. Hey, hey, Robert, did, did you grow up in a place where whatever the actual law was, you at least thought that fireworks were illegal and that setting them off in your yard might summon the police?
2: No, uh, I, I grew up in places where it seemed that fireworks were just part of life and you could just go out and play with a bunch of firecrackers, uh, in the afternoon by yourself. And it wasn't any big deal, you know, strap them to GI Joe (laughs) and, um, build little volcanoes out of dirt and then blow them up get some uh, scotch tape and see how many um, what bottle rockets you could uh, uh, lash together and still achieve something that would fly through the air, that sort of thing.
1: So definitely when I was a little kid, I had the impression that using fireworks was illegal. I don't know if it was, <laughs> but I think that's because you couldn't buy them in the county where I lived. So when Fourth of July or New Year's or whatever was coming up and we wanted to get fireworks, we had to go on a road trip up or down the Interstate uh, to a, to one of the the more lawless evil counties where you could go to Big Daddy's Firecrackers or <laughs> you know one of these other places. Uh, I remember when I was a kid one time buying a it, you know using my little allowance money to buy a firecracker that was very exciting looking because it was shaped like a tank it was made of cardboard and i thought now this thing's going to be like a piece of mobile artillery it's going to roll around and shoot out stuff I, i recall it didn't really do much and it was one of my earliest experiences of spending money on something expecting it to be great and it being a total flop
2: I remember being really impressed with like the tanks and the little sort of novelty items because basically we, when Fourth of July or New Year's would roll around, they'd set up a tent or a couple of tents in town uh, in the place where I grew up, and and you know they would sell the fireworks there. I always wanted to get things like the tank, but uh, generally a parental uh, or grown up uh, uh, unit that was present would would say no 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 that's that's a waste of money. You want something that goes up in the air and blows up. My my fondest memory i remember uh, i think my grandparents got this one was one that went up exploded and dropped tiny parachute men out of it like little oh, army yeah. men and that was that was crazy that was awesome because it's dropping something then you then find that's not just total garbage i mean it's essentially garbage but mm-hmm. not total garbage no it's uh, great cuz then you strap a firecracker to that army man and blow it up <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I guess um but, but then i also remember being really impressed by the ones that look like actual rockets the more rockety the better right mm-hmm. and i distinctly remember talking my my parents into getting this this one rocket and then we 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 brought it home and as it turned out one of the problems with this particular rocket is it's supposed to have a launching rod you know like a rod that sticks into the ground that ensures that it takes off in a uh, you know a, a with a straight skyward trajectory mm-hmm. uh, that rod had been mis- misplaced prior to purchase so it did not have one uh, so we set this thing off and it instead of going straight up into the sky and exploding, it went straight up and made a, a turn and then went through a a, a, a narrow gap in the um, the sliding glass door of our house and, oh no. uh, hit, and hit my uncle in the face. Uh, oh, no. Fortunately, it didn't like blow up in his face or anything, but like, you know, kind of punctured his cheek a little bit and then like skittered around on the, the carpeted floor shooting sparks everywhere. Uh, so that was exciting. Did you get to keep playing with fireworks after that? Uh Yeah, it, I guess it did inspire <laughs> me to be a little, maybe I was a little more careful after that. And I certainly didn't oh, okay. get into the total recklessness of, you know, people launching Roman candles at each other, that sort of thing that you hear about. I was generally, it yeah, was generally that you hear just, about. yeah, you hear about or hear horror stories about. But or for that, me, uh, it, or it that was, your friends did in high school. Yeah, for me, it was just um, firecrackers and, and bottle rockets. So, you know, low level uh, and, uh, firework ammunition here, not getting into like cherry bombs and so forth.
1: I have personal stories about firecracker use in high school that I'm just not going to share on the podcast because I do not want to inspire imitators and, and have kids get body parts blown off.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say as a parent, I, I certainly am far more, um, protective when it comes to fireworks. A, I'm not like super into them as an, as a grown Um, I, I like watching professional fireworks every now and then, but then again, I'm not, and i really go out of my way to see them. If they're around, I will look up, you know, and I'm I'm more protective of my son. Like, I don't, I don't really like the idea of him even playing with fireworks to the degree that I did growing up. Well, you know, one safe alternative that has always puzzled
1: me is one of the most bizarre genres of home media that I've ever seen. I, I recall seeing these, I think, in the gift shop area of a Cracker Barrel and <laughs>
2: DVDs of fireworks displays. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, I I only vaguely remember seeing (laughs) these. I never watched one. That's for sure. Yeah, I didn't either. But
1: I'm just wondering what. So does somebody buy this DVD and take it home and just put it on? It's like, yeah, I just want to watch some fireworks in the living room.
2: I guess, you know, I mean, is it that different from uh, watching The Hearth on Netflix every Christmas? Uh, I think it's somewhat different. I
1: mean, and neither one's going to give off heat the way uh, <laughs> that it would in reality. But, you know, a real fireworks display, you sort of feel the sound. There's this booming thing and and it's live so you're usually experiencing it along with many other people who are celebrating something yeah just having one on the tv i don't know they, you, i feel like you get closer to the
2: reality of a fire burning in your fireplace with a fire on the tv yeah probably so probably so uh then again i do i do know that they they televise, or at least in the past they would televise some of these big fireworks shows and and uh, I remember, I remember those being on uh, TV when I was a kid. Yeah, I guess so. So, as uh, as everyone can guess, here we are talking about fireworks today. This is going to be one of our invention-themed episodes, our uh, an exploration of the origin of fireworks, which is a fascinating story that I, I think a lot of us probably know, like the broad strokes of it. I think a lot of people are probably. At the very least, vaguely aware of the the Chinese origins that we're going to be discussing here. But even just the Chinese origins of fireworks, it's just such a a wonderful tale full of mystery and magic and and also goblins. And then, likewise, Mm -hmm. when we get into the European history of it as well, there is a lot of magic and mystery there as well. Totally. So we're not going to run through the entire history of pyrotechnology here, but suffice to say that the human ability to manipulate, sustain, control, and produce fire is key to technological advancement as a whole. I mean, it's just difficult to overstate the importance of fire mastery in human history. Yeah, it's not just key, it's the master key. It's yeah. the thing that unlocks almost everything
1: else. Again, there's a reason... That uh, broadly, historical technological regimes are characterized in terms of metalworking, like what types of things you could make tools out of, mm-hmm. and you couldn't really have metalworking without fire. That's
2: right. If you want a, a more detailed breakdown of sort of like the Basic fire technology history of humanity. Check out our what was it a three part series we did on the matchstick for invention our um, our other show uh, which has now been folded back into this show but all those episodes about the matchstick are still available uh, for your listening. Yeah, the fire extinguisher too. We talked about That's that right. Yeah, we kind of con- we continued. So it was ultimately more like a, a six part journey through uh, some major moments in, in pyrotechnology.
1: I feel like this show is maybe uh, against our wishes reveal some Freudian preoccupations going on in both of our brains. <laughs> what, with explosive fireworks? Yeah, you know, we can't stop thinking and talking about firecrackers, fire, setting fire to stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, well, also, we're coming up on July 4th, and I think that was uh, one of the main issues here, too. Is we've been talking about doing a fireworks episode forever, and then finally... Um, Work asked us, us, hey, do you have anything in the catalog that's uh, July 4th themed? And we're like, well, no, not really. But we've been wanting to do fireworks. So here we are. So one of the things that we touch on in those pyrotechnology episodes is that in many ways, The campfire itself, the the longstanding important aspect of of human culture, is in itself an ancient laboratory, a place where humans experimented with uh, the addition of various fuels and substances to learn what burns, what doesn't burn, and sometimes what burns really well or what combusts. You know, I didn't think of this until just now, but this is also
1: bringing to mind the recent episodes we did about buildings made out of mammoth bone that were found in what is now Russia and Ukraine. But uh, in this ancient Ice Age culture and a big part of that culture seemed to be based around the burning of bones as fuel, something we wouldn't even normally think of as possible.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like bones are one example of a of a, of a combustion uh, uh, source that uh, that has played an important role in human history. Uh, another one, of course, is dung. Um, some mm-hmm. some uh, listeners, particularly in some cultures, may not be aware of just how important dung has been and still is uh, in many cases as a fuel. You know, you can almost still
1: feel the instinct in yourself, or at least I can, whenever you are sitting around a fire and you have some kind of novel item. There's almost this primordial urge to just you know, see what it's like
2: if you just throw that in the fire. What does it look like when it burns? What does it do? <laughs> yeah, I see that with my son, especially. Uh, we recently were putting up, uh, uh, we were, we had some tomato plants and we we're like, oh, we're, let's get some sticks to uh, brace these suckers. And then we realized, oh no, the last time we had a fire in the backyard, the boy burned everything. Like every, every piece of dry wood was consumed. So... Oh, I sympathize. <laughs> so it shouldn't come as any surprise, then, that there, there are you know, various accounts of pre fireworks substances and materials that would combust or burn in a certain way that was notable. And one of the r- really key examples here that is central to the origin of fireworks is bamboo. Now, bamboo, I think everyone's familiar with bamboo, but uh, it is a hollow-hearted grass. Uh, It's especially common in East Asia, but you'll find it throughout the world's tropical regions. Now, I know many of you have enjoyed this exact experiment. Uh, And if you haven't, uh, I I suggest you try it the next time you have a campfire, if, if at all possible. Dry bamboo can burn quite readily. And in some cases, the drying out process causes those hollows in the bamboo to crack open. But other times, there remains a... sealed pocket of air in there so if you throw the bamboo into the fire the heat will cause the air within that hollow to expand and it'll expand enough that it pops and produces a startling bang when it explodes
1: i've never done this personally but now i really want to
2: yeah it's it's tremendous fun i mean it it we can well imagine that this was one of the, the the key attractions it's like we put this into the fire and it's 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 alarming it's entertaining it's uh you know it, it's it's raising your uh your awareness uh it's something that i think you know we can w- when we experience it we're experiencing the the uh the primal experience of burning bamboo as well
1: now, this property of bamboo is something that has been recognized since ancient times.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it also brings to mind another interesting idea that we recently discussed uh, in our Fardanomicon episodes. Um, uh, Mary Roach, in her um, her book, uh, what was it? Uh, gulp i believe uh she uh, has this conversation with the, the university of alabama's stephen secor about snakes and he has this theory that uh or hypothesis rather that uh, perhaps the myth of fire breathing <laughs> dragons has some origin in dead constrictor snakes bloated with prey bring being brought to the fireside and then a post-mortem exhalation of stomach gases ignites the fi- the flames or makes the flames roar up um which uh, you know i don't know Know if there's a whole lot of evidence for that but it was an interesting idea
1: yeah highly speculative but i like it
2: yeah and it gets again it kind of touches on the same uh, area that we're touching on here with bamboo uh the idea that there's you know, this inevitable amusement to be had in burning it in the fire so it would uh, it would seem impossible to truly date how far back this practice goes of observing that bamboo pops in a fire, uh, but given the necessary components, uh, you know, and the obvious lack of archaeological evidence, we have to consider that it goes like pretty much all the way back in, uh, in as far as there have been peoples around bamboo that are capable of producing fire. And in Chinese history, we at least can consider it as long as we've had Chinese writing, and uh, and that is where we see some some you know early evidence that this. Was an established thing. So I was reading some writings by um, Hai Wang Yuan of Western Kentucky University, where he's a professor of library science, but he's also a guest professor of the Foreign Languages College at uh, Nankai University in China, and he's written several books on Chinese proverbs and legends. In 2008, he wrote a piece on Chinese fireworks, and he points out uh, that uh, what we're talking about here is baozhu, which is exploding bamboo. Like, that's the word for it, and it, it later becomes used for fireworks. And he points to uh, a few early mentions of, of uh, this sort of thing. He points to, the, to Song Dynasty writer Wang Anxi, who lived uh, 1021 through 1086, who wrote a poem in which uh, one of the lines translates as follows. Quote, Emits the crackling." Of of exploding bamboo, a year is gone. In the warmth of a spring breeze, we drink the wine of Suzu. Now to me, that's availing itself of multiple interpretations. When the
1: year is gone amidst the crackling of bamboo, is that because crackling bamboo is meant to signal the turning of the new year? Or is it that a year is gone in a flash as as fast as as bamboo cracks?
2: Yeah, it's nice. There's some wonderful poetry to it. But certainly it does seem to be describing Uh, you know, whatever it's alluding to, uh, you know, metaphorically, it is also uh, alluding to the Chinese custom, the the New Year Spring Festival celebration of burning bamboo to create loud, startling noises as a part of celebrations. This was actually making me wonder
1: about the linguistic conceptual history of Exploding or the idea of an explosion. Yeah. Before a culture had combustible chemicals, like, say, black powder. Would the culture have had a concept or a word that means exactly what explode means to us today? I'm trying to think what other chances to observe natural explosions would have been. Obviously, bamboo seems like a good one, but what beyond that? You can think of volcanic eruptions, but that wouldn't be something that people – observed often enough you would think to to have its own dedicated word for it uh and it seems to me like many early writings about uh chemical combustion actually use words related to other much more common natural phenomena that aren't exactly explosions things like thunder and lightning
2: yeah because uh, i guess my mind does instantly go to things that are more i guess a bursting or rupturing for Mm. instance um the the popping of a um of a, of, of a pimple or, or a blister or, a, or some sort of a, you know, skin ailment or the bursting of say a blood-filled um, tick that sort of thing, but those mm-hmm. are again it's more of a bursting or a rupturing, and I would you know we wouldn't necessarily compare it to an exploding. Likewise, if you were doing something with say uh, bladders of animals that have been inflated with air or water and then you're bursting them in some fashion, mm-hmm. it's still probably a different thing than just explosion. I can imagine that with the bladder
1: uh, because it seems like the important phenomena are the ones of like suddenly relieving large amounts of pressure with a sound or some kind of uh, some kind of like uh,
2: tactile blast that you can feel. Yeah. And you're just not going to get that with a with with a a blood filled tick or with a pimple. I mean, if you could, that'd be pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a mental popping sound, but it's not really an audible sound. It's just more of an experience. Right. Um, And then again, we're probably to what extent are we thinking about explosions when we engage? And, you know, it's like the, the 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 idea of the explosion then informs how we're thinking about rupturing and bursting. Yeah. So um, I mentioned there was another um, uh, bit of uh, poetry here that Yuan refers to. He refers to uh, writings in the Book of Songs, one of the five classics of of Chinese poetry said to be compiled by Confucius himself. And this is from the late Western Zhou dynasty, which would be 1046 BCE through 771 BCE. And it translates as follows. How goes the night? It's not yet midnight, but the tinglao is already blazing. So, Ting Lao apparently refers to a kind of torch made of bamboo, and as it burns, it makes these crackling, perhaps popping noises. So, it's an upgrading of the bamboo popping effect into a different sort of uh, pyrotechnic device. Not just desultory poking
1: into the fire with a piece of bamboo such that it pops, but making a torch that is designed
2: to pop as it burns. Yes, that's that's my understanding of it. Yes. You now it's easy to simply extrapolate our modern enjoyment of such pops and bangs to ancient peoples. And, and I do think it's perfectly fair to assume this is a large part of it. You know, like a startling sound is amusing and, uh, you know, you, you start, you're scared for a second and then you're relieved and you're laughing like that's, I think that's just part Part of the universal human experience and it's been that way for, for a very long time. Yeah, I'm reminded of the psychological attraction people
1: have to popping bubble wrap. Why do people like doing that so much? I think we hypothesized in a previous episode of Invention that it might have something to do with grooming instincts, maybe. Mm, Yeah, back to pimple popping and tick bursting, right? (laughs) Exactly. But I think part of it also, especially when you see children do it, it seems a little bit less like anxiety relieving grooming behaviors with them and and more like a game of uh, Jack in the Box or Pop Goes the Weasel or or Mm -hmm. Peekaboo or something. It's just repeatedly startling yourself with the
2: sound and enjoying it. Absolutely. And so I, I think, it, again, it's perfectly fair to say this is a large part of what we're talking about here. But another part of the tradition is the use of loud noises to frighten away uh, spirits or monsters. Uh, the, the more recent uh, version of this is the idea of frightening away the New Year's beast, the uh, Nian Shao. Now, there's some discussion about whether this is actually uh, you know, how, how old this tradition goes back. There's some that say that it's essentially a recent uh, tradition that's popped up. And this gets into, you know, some of the, the, the Chinese New Year celebrations that uh, most of us are familiar with seeing. You know, the idea of like a lion dance taking place and firecrackers going off, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it also correlates to an ancient tradition that Juan discusses, the, the Shanjiao Uh, According to the Han Dynasty classic, The Book of Gods and Spirits, these strange creatures would harass campfires in the night. And they were also said in some traditions to carry a disease that could cause chills and fevers. So what you did is you used bamboo firewood because that would, of course, uh, pop at regular intervals and create these uh, frightening noises that would keep these monsters, spirits, creatures, whatever you want to call them, away from your fire. So, it is not just amusing
1: to have exploding bamboo around, but it's also somewhere between a real repellent of maybe some kind of creature that would threaten your campfire, or at least imagined as some kind of apotropaic magic to keep the demons away.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, so obviously quite unexpectedly goblins were, were popping up in the research so I decided to look a little deeper um, oh, yeah. and one, of, one of the sources we came across is uh, a book by Richard von Glan titled The Sinister Way The Divine and the Demonic in Chinese Religious Culture and in it uh, he says that are uh, sometimes translated as mountain goblins uh, and described as uh, being ape-like in various ways uh, and he, he says that uh, basically these are quote a class of petty demons changeling spirits inhabiting the wild mountains and forests
1: yeah overall he seems to characterize them as a kind of uh, a very classic type of monster actually the monster that in that embodies the chaos of the wilderness as opposed to the order of civilization
2: yeah. And of course, you see this in European traditions. You see this uh, in, in cultures around the world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the dark is is frightening. The wilds are frightening, especially if they are not your wilds. And that's something that he points out. Uh, he, uh, von, uh, von Glan points out that uh, after the loss of northern China to foreign uh, conquerors in 317, the Chinese rulers were displaced to the south where they encountered a dense, humid, subtropical environment along with rugged mountains, along with new wildlife and native peoples. So he says that this was uh, to uh, uh, to the rulers of uh, uh, that have that had come down from northern china. This was a place of barbaric peoples of savage spirits and uh, and thus you see that it may be strengthening predispositions for this sort of folkloric motif.
1: Though then again, I, I wonder how much um, the idea of like mountain goblins that are considered somewhat humanoid, somewhat ape-like might have been inspired by encounters with actual wildlife. Like I know, mm-hmm. uh, of course, uh, gibbons uh, traditionally occupied much of ancient China and there and there's a lot of consciousness of gibbons in Chinese culture and poetry.
2: Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um and, and apparently some some reads on the Shengzhou uh, certainly point towards, you know, actual apes as being at least part of it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because indeed, what do we know about a lot of monkey species in the monkeys, uh, especially in the wild, is that they can be curious. They can be um, they can be some a manner of a pest when they encounter human activities. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much we should read into the idea of um, of illness being caused by them, because you see this a lot with mythical creatures. Right. And in and mm-hmm. mythical magic magical beings and magical peoples they cause disease they're a way of explaining illness in a pre-germ theory world right but at the same time you know obviously one can transmit illnesses from uh, uh wild animals so that could potentially be a part of it i guess uh However, you do see folks that go in an entirely cryptid direction with all of this, and they're like, oh, well, this is clearly, uh, you know, we're, we're clearly talking about Sasquatches here. Was there an X-Files episode about the Shanziao? I don't know. You were the one to tell me about the whether there's an X-Files oh. episode or not. I don't remember one, uh, but, you know, they, they, they
1: churned through a lot of cryptids over the mm-hmm. course of that show. There's a lot of seasons to fill. At some point, they were even doing the Jersey Devil, so, you know, they were really, really, really rooting around in the bottom
2: of the bucket but but that does also point to you know you can point to plenty of other cultures that have some sort of a wild man of the woods kind of uh uh, creature or multiple creatures in their mythology like uh and to a certain extent a number of these could be inspired by observances of uh ape creatures in the wild
1: yeah, sure. I mean, that—that's always one of the great mysteries when you're dealing with mythical beasts. Is like, uh, what percent of it is imagination, and what percent is inspired by something people saw? Either like, you know, seeing a person and misunderstanding what you saw, or seeing some seeing wildlife and misunderstanding.
2: Yeah. Now, now, von Galan points out that th- there are other. Things that were sort of classified as as also being Shenzhao in essence. One of them was this uh, these entities called the wutong shen that I think we talked about in the past on the show because they're in some ways in some versions of them are comparable to incubi demons in European traditions. Mm-hmm. But uh, but these are uh, as you often see with uh, with mythical creatures and beings and in um, cultures the wutong shen end up like changing over time and becoming more like gods and being something that should be revered whereas uh von glan points out that the the shanzhou goblins just remain untransformed in cultural traditions they remain these pesky goblins of the wild and one issue that i found rather interesting here that i don't really have a firm answer on is uh is is why in some cases, like in a number of cases they're, they're described as ape-like, but sometimes they have inverted feet and then perhaps in some cases a single leg. Hmm. And that made me think of these other cases of monopeds, which are described in various traditions, including by uh, Pliny the Elder, uh, the notion of one-legged wood spirits uh, that uh, that one might encounter in the wild. Again, entirely speculative
1: here, but I'm I just wonder if that kind of concept could be inspired by seeing the different locomotion of apes like gibbons who walk or climb or hang with the aid of very long arms.
2: Yeah, or kind of like a, a side profile kind of issue where mm-hmm. you're just looking at them from the side and you're like, oh, well, they're kind of moving like a human might move if they had one leg and a pair of crutches, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's always a possibility. One of the uh, and then also, you could also throw in, well, it's a minimally counterintuitive creature design, right? What if not two legs, but one? Sure. Likewise, you could compare it to congenital deformities in, in human beings. But, but one interesting hypothesis that I ran across was uh, from um, the scholar Carl A.P. Ruck, who proposed that at least some of these might be connected to Vedic traditions involving soma. Um, which, of course, is uh, so soma Soma was this um, essentially some sort of drug that is described in ancient texts. And the actual bot- botanical reality of Soma remains something of a mystery with explanations ranging from psilocybin to something like ephedra. <laughs> OK, <laughs> but uh, but Ruck's uh, pr- proposition here is that this idea of a one-armed being in the woods is essentially tied to a botanical description. Specifically, he wrote about Shadefoots, uh, a fabulous tribe from India who were thought to jump about on a single foot that could be uh, used as a parasol. Uh, and apparently the idea is that the, what if this is uh, you know, it's, it's an exaggerated um, uh, anthropomorphic description of a plant that you would encounter in the wild? Hmm. I don't know. I don't have a firm answer on that, but it's an interesting idea. (laughs) I'm trying to picture it. A plant that
1: that could metaphorically be described as a person with one foot who can also use their foot as a parasol.
2: I guess, I mean, mm-hmm. well, so my, my family recently went, um, mushroom foraging mm-hmm. and, and also just sort of identifying mushrooms. And, you know, we have a number of them. We have the old man in the woods is one of the, the old man of the woods is one of the mushrooms you encounter, you know, the, yeah. the, the, chicken or hen of the woods is another. So there's a lot of this sort of thing that goes on with the, with the naming, uh, of, uh, and certainly the non-scientific naming of various, um, Organisms in the wild, so you know it seems totally possible. Even I don't know that there's actually any any evidence for it. Uh, if it's, it may just be pure speculation, but that's something to think about. As for von Glan himself, uh, he ultimately summarizes that that he thinks quote It seems likely that these demonic images derived from frightening encounters with denizens of the mountains, both human and ape." Okay,
1: so it might be just sort of conflating of stories of people encountering gibbons, people encountering other people they weren't familiar with, and and it turns into monster stories. But ultimately leads to this consciousness of a thing you can do to repel the monsters of the wild, the monsters of the mountains, is that you can have a bamboo torch that explodes and frightens and drives them off.
2: Yeah, you know, you may, and, and it's one of those things which it makes sense if you're dealing with an actual um, frightening animal or, you know, in the wild, make some loud noises, scare it away. But also it's something you can do against even ideas of darkness, right? More uh, supernatural uh, premises about, the, about the, the the nature of reality. You know, I am frightened, but hey, I can make a loud noise and uh, and that's gonna, that's at least something. There's something actually very instinctual, I think, about the idea
1: of making noise when you are frightened especially in the dark or in the wild. You know, there's the old expression, whistling uh, whistling past the graveyard. Yeah. Um, or, or you'll just notice it in people when they start getting scared walking around in a place like kids sometimes maybe start talking louder or start talking to themselves or snapping their fingers or whistling or humming. We've got this natural sense that making noises provides security.
2: Yeah, I remember thinking this while watching... Um, the movie It, the recent adaptation of Stephen King's It, you know, where these the children are encountering this horrifying uh, supernatural entity, and I just kept thinking, like, oh man, if I encountered uh, Pennywise the clown, I would just yell at him. I would just yell at him. He wouldn't even know what to do. You know, like that, like that's one way you can diffuse the the supernatural adversary of fear. He doesn't expect you to go on the offensive and right. uh, and, and shout things at him. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, maybe it's connected to that. I don't know. Uh, Should we take a break and then come
2: back to talk more about the invention of fireworks? Yes, we'll take a quick break for the ad goblins and then we'll be back with more content. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Okay, we heard from the ad goblins, but we, uh, we we used some popping devices to drive them away, and now we're back into the history of proto-fireworks, at least.
2: Yeah, so yeah, we've talked about proto fireworks, but where do actual fireworks enter the picture? Things that we can that we would actually look at, say, on a table and say, "Oh, look at that! That's that's a firework. That's a firecracker, etc." So basically, the idea is that the, the Chinese simply augmented their fire and noise maker practices with chemically volatile substances once those substances were discovered. So as we discussed in our our match episodes, sulfur-tipped matches were already in use in China by the 6th century CE. But uh, the key to fireworks is, of course... uh, uh, this special um, array of chemicals that come together to, to, uh, to make gunpowder. Uh, there's, of course, saltpeter, which is potassium nitrate, which was already being stuffed into bamboo during the Southern Song period of 1127 through 1279 in order to create a more impressive bang with the bamboo. And between uh, these two periods, potassium nitrate is said to have emerged from the realm of Chinese alchemy.
1: Yeah. So maybe we should stop for a second to look at the chemical properties of potassium nitrate and understand the role it plays in the development of of firecrackers. So uh, back to the principles of fire. You know, we've talked about a number of times, what does fire need in order to burn? It needs fuel, it needs heat, and it needs oxygen because fire is a chemical reaction in which fuel reacts with oxygen under heat to produce byproducts of primarily carbon dioxide and water vapor with other trace uh, elements in molecules given off. And potassium nitrate or saltpeter can aid in the process of combustion because of its chemical composition. So potassium nitrate is made out of one nitrogen atom, one potassium atom, and three oxygen atoms. And the key to its role in combustion is is those three oxygen atoms. It is an oxygen donor to the combustion process. Fire can only burn as fast as it can access oxygen to react with the fuel. Remember, it's a reaction. Now, of course, the atmosphere is full of oxygen so there's, you know, w- w- on Earth, it's pretty easy to get a fire going if you have enough heat and fuel because there's just free oxygen all over the place. But the surface of a burning log can still only access so much atmospheric oxygen at once, right? Like, you know, it's giving off Chemicals and gases as it burns, of course, and then there's it can really only react with the oxygen that's sort of touching right along the edge of the the log. So there is a there's a limit to the rate of combustion imposed by the amount of oxygen available to react at the same time. Potassium nitrate plays the role of an oxidizer in the combustion reactions. It provides a ready supply of extra oxygen. So in the presence of heat and fuel, saltpeter will massively accelerate the speed at which fuel burns, meaning you get often something beyond simple burning and something that, that qualifies as an explosion
2: and this is where the the Chinese alchemists come in now now we refer to them as alchemists but obviously we're using we have Western alchemy and then we have Chinese alchemy and uh, they're directly comparable in a number of ways I mean ultimately you're dealing with with people on both sides that are attempting to, to figure out what substances do and what they can achieve in various combinations with each other right and these practices are usually some combination
1: actually of real scientific study of the material properties of different chemicals and a lot of
2: of magical beliefs mixed in. Yes, and in this particular case, uh, it said that the, the alchemists in general were attempting to create pills of immortality or dan, which interestingly involved mixing up a compound of saltpeter, sulfur and charcoal. And you might be wondering, well, why these particular substances? Well, for instance, sulfur was used for skin ailments, saltpeter for fever. And uh, the thing is, when you hit just the right percentages here, according to Juan, for, uh, for saltpeter, sulfur, and charcoal, it would be like 61.54%, 30.77%, and 7.6%. Put it all together, and you have gunpowder. Yeah. And that gunpowder comes together because you have
1: mixed up the oxidizer, which is the saltpeter, the potassium nitrate, and the fuel, which is the charcoal and the sulfur. And so once you mix them all together like that, they can create something that burns suddenly, very rapidly.
2: Now, in some traditions, some accounts, this discovery is attributed to a particular individual, uh, Sun Sim Miao, who who uh, would have been born in uh, 541 CE. And he was the, the so-called king of medicine. He wrote, um, in these translations of the titles, uh, essential formulas for emergencies worth a thousand pieces of gold, and then a follow-up, supplement to the formulas of a thousand gold worth. And even in translation, those are simply marvelous titles. Uh-huh. So it, it, it's... <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Uh, My next novel should be called The Story That's Worth a Million Bucks. There you go. It's just good marketing. Now, I, I, it seems like it's unlikely that, that uh, this individual actually invented gunpowder, but he certainly recorded its usage, uh, in, particularly in a book, "Optimization of Alchemical Processes by Sulphuric Method." the translation, and it, it's seemingly the, the oldest known reference to gunpowder, uh, so we can trace it roughly to his lifetime, or, or you know, probably before. And interestingly, with its medicinal roots, gunpowder continued to be used as a curative property in. In, um, in, uh, in traditional Chinese medicine, for things like ringworm and various skin issues, into the 16th century.
1: Yeah, and of course, saltpeter had many uses outside the creation of, say, elixirs of immortality or uh, or the creation of gunpowder. For example, saltpeter has long been a preservative for certain kinds of foods. You know, it's been a mm-hmm. preservative for meats. In a way, it's an elixir of immortality
2: for salami. <laughs> exactly. Now, obviously, gunpowder has its own enormous history, and it's going to end up playing a, a, a much bigger role in global affairs in the centuries to follow. But the Chinese, this is essential essential to, to point out, the Chinese realized its military potential pretty early on, uh, like during the Tang Dynasty, and it was compiled in Chinese military texts by 1040. And this is notable because there's something of this, this myth in Western traditions that while a Chinese... Chinese invention gunpowder would ultimately require Western ingenuity to take off as a weapon. The idea that the Chinese invented something but didn't really understand what they'd invented. And nothing could really be further from the truth because they developed rockets, fire arrows, fire lances. They were using uh, uh, long bamboo tubes that were packed with, uh, with gunpowder as early as like 1132. And there's evidence of bronze cannons as early as um, 1332 or 1128 even. So the use of military gunpowder advancements was very much a part of uh, the Chinese world at the time. And it's just spread outward from there, transforming warfare everywhere it went. And it's interesting to
1: consider the ongoing relationship between recreational fireworks and warfare, because obviously the same chemicals can be used for both. You know, you can use gunpowder to make a a, a harmless uh, celebratory device or to make a cannon that kills people. And it, it's interesting how this association has remained in people's minds throughout the centuries, because very often celebratory fireworks, not, not always, but very often are used to celebrate things like military Victories. it's almost like they call to mind the battle that you're thinking back on and celebrating
2: oh yeah i mean we see that in uh, the united states with the star-spangled banner which is talking about stuff blowing up in the sky mm-hmm. and then uh, especially around the fourth of july it is uh, it is paired with actual fireworks exploding in the sky to so get back into the, this world of fireworks proper we, in, in the Chinese origins, we can see how explosive and combustive substances come together with baoju, you know? But let's not forget the other aspect of fireworks, the part that you, you might not think about as much when you buy a bunch of fireworks or even when you set them off uh, at night. But the next day, when you go to clean up your yard, uh, you're going to encounter the reality of all the paper and cardboard mm-hmm. that makes uh, a firework possible. Yeah, it often looks like there has been like
1: a battle between uh, armies of toilet paper rolls that just hacked
2: each other to bits. Yeah, because even today, fireworks depend on paper and cardboard. That tank you were describing earlier was inevitably made out of of cardboard and paper. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we explored in our recent two-parter uh, on Stuff to Will Your Mind about the invention of the book the history of the book paper was an expensive luxury in in olden times uh, Chinese paper had already been around for centuries but, uh, but it was a, it was a it was a high-priced substance this was not the kind of thing you would just readily uh, fill with gunpowder and set off or burn but then during the Song Dynasty we see the creation of bamboo paper which was much more affordable and so this was finally paper that was cost effective enough to use in fireworks uh you know pure fireworks the kind of fire not not just the, the things that might amuse um, you know individuals of great wealth but something that could be you know a little more available to everyone else
1: yeah there is uh there's the main explosive charge and that's wrapped
2: together with a timed ignition device which is the fuse it used to be called the match Now, a number of you are probably thinking, well, that's a firecracker, and maybe that is essentially a bottle rocket, but obviously, there are plenty of more elaborate fireworks. I mean, there are just thousands of types of fireworks today, and... uh, and these, the more traditional, these sort of exploding, sparkling, colorful fireworks, this sort of thing, didn't become popular in China till apparently the 17th or 18th centuries, during the last dynastic period uh, of China, uh, the Qing Dynasty. And one writes that some historians credit fireworks, uh, credit these type, this type of firework technology to a specialist by the name of Li Tai, uh, saying that he basically invented these for when he was asked by the Zhang Jing Emperor to create something special. And and the story goes that he's, you know, he's been asked to create some sort of special firework. He goes out and he notices all the colorful sparks that are uh, that are uh, inside of a blacksmith's shop as the blacksmith is uh, is pounding away at the steel. And he decides to experiment with different sizes of iron particles mixed with the gunpowder.
1: Yeah, and this actually does connect to the way that most colored fireworks displays are created today. They're they're often produced uh, by by packing fireworks shells with these little pellets known as stars that include different types of chemicals, often metal salts that, when burned, uh, create different colors. So, for example, red fireworks often have some kind of strontium content, like strontium carbonate, or uh, orange fireworks might have calcium chloride and so forth. Apparently, blue fireworks are one of the hardest colors to make, and that requires uh, copper or copper chloride content. But the most common form of fireworks you see in big festival displays today you know, not the little firecrackers you'd set off in your yard, but big festival displays. These would generally use what might be known as the mortar or the shell model. So you've got a core explosive charge that's usually made out of black powder and a lift charge. It burns quickly. It, it expands and turns into heat and gas. It shoots it up into the sky. And then it is t- the fuse is timed so that when it's way up in the sky, it will reach the, the center charge and then it will explode and the shell will be packed with all these little things, these little explosive balls called stars, and the the stars can be packed in special arrangements, and the arrangements of the stars within the shell is usually what gives rise to the patterns of the exploding fireworks, and there are actually artisans who will make special fireworks, like custom packing of the stars inside to give you the color you want and the shape of the explosion you want, so you can get hearts, you can get smiley faces, or whatever. And I just got to share, by the way, I I found a a Wikipedia article with one of the best sentences in English I've ever read. Uh, I was looking (laughs) at this the other day. It's from a wiki article about pyrotechnic stars. And the sentence goes, pumped stars are stars that have been pumped
2: using a star pump. (laughs) <laughs> I love that because it, out of context, it's just a sentence that says nothing.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I was trying to think, are there any other ways ways you could plug words into that sentence structure to make it work? I was thinking, wait a minute. Cooked rice is rice that has been cooked using a rice cooker. It's there you not, go. It doesn't quite
2: work, though, because you can cook rice other ways. I don't know. But a star pump is, has, has only one function, and that is to pump stars. It's true. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break, but when we come back, uh, we'll get into some of the Western tradition of fireworks.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? So I wanted to look at a post on the always wonderful Medieval Manuscripts blog on the British Library website. This post is by Alison Ray. Uh, I feel like I've mentioned pieces by this blog on the show before. I think we discussed an awesome one they had about anti-theft curses in medieval manuscripts. Mm, Yes, It's just a really great blog to follow. And I'm actually going to reference a couple of posts uh, that I came across in this episode. So this one talks about how fireworks have been a popular source of information entertainment in England since as early as the 15th century. Uh, Ray writes that the first recorded use of fireworks in England was at King Henry VII's wedding celebration in 1486. And I have seen this historical claim made all over the place, and I was trying to find contemporary documentation, or at least the earliest documentation of it I could, and I I could not find that. It it makes me wonder how modern writers know this, but I assume that the British library bloggers have their, their history sorted out. So I'll trust him on this one. So the the wedding of King Henry VII, uh, King Henry was also known as Henry Tudor, and uh, his ascent to the throne was the ultimate conclusion of the Wars of the Roses, where the houses of Lancaster and York had struggled for control of England for like three decades. This is chronicled with some propagandistic slant in Shakespeare's play Richard III. Of course, Richard III was the last of the York kings. Henry had some kind of roughly 37th in line succession claim to the throne uh, through the line of Lancaster, but he really came to power through some political maneuvering and military victory. So his claim was, of course, through the Lancaster line, but he apparently got in position for power by swearing to marry Elizabeth of York, which would unite the two houses if he was victorious. And Richard, Richard III had enemies within his own house. So with some French support henry VII landed in wales in 1485 he led an army against richard's power center in london Uh, richard took an army out to meet him henry and richard's forces fought a conclusive battle at bosworth field on august 22nd 1485 where richard was killed in the fighting uh, allegedly while trying to like strike deep behind enemy ranks and kill Henry himself to end the war immediately. And Richard III was apparently the last English king killed in battle. So after the battle, Henry is victorious. He's like, well, okay, you know, I've basically got a claim to the throne by succession. I just won in battle, which means God must want me to be king. So Henry was crowned at the end of October 1485, and true to his promise, he married Elizabeth of York in January of 1486. And this marriage was of greater than normal political importance. It was more than just the pageantry of of, of a royal wedding. It was in some ways the symbolic extinguishment of a dynastic war that had been raging for about 30 years so why not a little extra celebration why not blow something up right Uh, ray's blog post also points to a 14th century manuscript known uh, as the british library royal ms 12b 25 this is primarily a medical text it talks about bodily humors herbal medicines astrology but It's got a recipe for fireworks, specifically fireworks, rockets, and the burning glass. And according to Ray, the opening to the section on the recipes for combustion – begins with references, quote, to Greek fire, an incendiary weapon first used by Byzantine forces against Arabic naval fleets during sieges on Constantinople in the late 7th century. So I think it's very interesting that a 14th century writer in English would say, okay, here's a recipe for making fun recreational fireworks, but uh, let's introduce it by talking about this
2: terror weapon. Yeah, yeah the terror weapon of the, of the Byzantines, uh, which, which we have an entire episode on in the uh, vault if anyone wants to listen to it.
1: But apparently, because of the danger posed by fireworks, the manuscript accompanies its recipes with protective magic spells that you can use against the fire. Quote The protective charms against fire invoke Saint Column Seal, also known as Columba or Column Kill, and Saint Agatha for protection. Saint Agatha was a patron saint against fire, lightning, and volcanic eruptions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, protective charms may seem unorthodox to us today. But they were often employed in the same manner as medical recipes and religious prayers. And this is something we've talked about on the show before, how in in late medieval and early modern writing in Europe – There's a lot of thinking that just blends magic and naturalistic or scientific knowledge as if there were no real difference between them. You know, here's how to make an explosive powder. Here's a magic spell to cure warts. Here's a recipe for toothpaste. Here's how to know if a witch is giving you a rash. (laughs) There's another British Library manuscript profile I wanted to mention. This one by curator Maddie Smith in 2017. And this is of a 17th century book called Pyrotechnica, written by a gunner named John Babington. And it's the first book in English that is known to be entirely about how to make fireworks for fun. It's entirely a book about recreational fireworks. Now, again, this is a much later work, maybe almost 300 years later than the previous manuscript. It is widely attested that Queen Elizabeth I of England loved fireworks. And note that Queen Elizabeth I is different from Elizabeth of York, who married Henry VII, Queen Elizabeth I ruled from 1558 until her death in 1603. I was looking for examples of her legendary love of fireworks, and I came across a letter written by a man named Lanaham describing the Queen's visit to Kenilworth Castle in 1575. And Lanaham describes it like this On the Sunday night, After a warning piece or two, there was a blaze of burning darts flying to and fro, beams of stars coruscant, streams and hail of fire sparks, lightnings of wildfire on the water, and on the land, flight and shot of thunderbolts, all with such continuance, terror and vehemence, the heavens thundered,
2: the waters surged, and the earth shook." Oh, man, that's 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 a great description. Shades of deep purple, but a great description. Well, you know, it doesn't it doesn't sound fun. (laughs) It sounds really (laughs) scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's uh, that those were my earliest experiences of fireworks just being terrified. So, uh, you know, feeling a sense of, of terror or safe terror is kind of part of it. Right. Yeah, that might be true.
1: Uh, of course, uh, Shakespeare mentions fireworks in a number of his plays, or at least in one or two plays. There's, there's a scene in Love's Labor's Lost uh, where a character says, quote, The king would have me present the princess, sweet Chuck, with some delightful ostentation or show or pageant or antique or firework. Huh. And apparently Queen Elizabeth liked fireworks so much that she commissioned a lord of fireworks to be in charge of the the whole process that would come to be known as the Fire Master of England, whose assistants were called green men because they wore hats made out of leaves to protect their heads from fire and sparks. So oh, wow.
2: Queen Elizabeth had a pyromancer. <laughs> That's awesome. And they're running about in these... Uh, uh, in, in these green uh, hats, but you know, made out of like green leaves. I mean, that sounds very elven. Uh, that reminds me of, of what we've discussed in the past about these uh, taboos against wearing green because that is the color of the fairies.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, I think the, those ones we talked about in the past were specifically uh, superstition about young women wearing them, or they would mm-hmm. make the fairy princesses jealous. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, if, I don't know. If you're already dealing with fire and fireworks for a living, why not put some leaves on your Head. Yeah. Uh, But so anyway, back to this book, Pyrotechnica, by Babington. It describes how to make a number of regular shell style fireworks of the kind we were talking about earlier and how to achieve different colors. Quote For stars of a blue color, a combination of gunpowder, saltpeter, and sulfur vive did the trick. He then progresses to making silver and gold rain, firework wheels, and fizz gigs, a French firework that fizzled before. Before it exploded
2: fizz oh. yeah fizz gig like like in the dark crystal all right uh,
1: but beyond that babington goes on in his book to give instructions for these elaborate displays such as the dragon The dragon was a giant wooden frame in the shape of a winged serpent that was filled and ornamented with all kinds of combustibles that would make it breathe fire and spark with fury. And one popular way of doing this dragon demonstration was to have both a wooden dragon crammed with fireworks and either a rival dragon or a figure of St. George, and then you would make them fight – Uh, So this is from Smith, quote, In Pyrotechnica, Babington instructs the reader to strap the dragon and St. George together so that when a wheel is turned, quote, they will run furiously at each other. They had to be well balanced as otherwise, quote, they would turn their heels upward, which would be a great disgrace to the work and the workmen. (laughs) It sounds like more of a disgrace. That that sounds maybe like an extreme safety hazard.
2: Uh, You included a, a shot here of a woodcut illustration from this book and uh, I have to say that combined with the description this is pure Burning Man like this is the exact spirit of that sort of like large scale pyro uh, technical display
1: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly this is Elizabethan Burning Man But so there's a big question here, right? So if if fireworks were probably invented in China and were super popular with the English monarchy by the 1500s, how did they make that journey? How did they get from China to Europe and specifically early modern England? Well, it turns out that the first known European to describe the creation of black powder was Dr. Mirabilis himself, Roger Bacon, uh, the 13th century English philosopher, proto-scientist, and Franciscan friar. And Dr. Mirabilis, I think it means technically wonderful teacher in Latin, but I like to think of him as Dr. Wonderful. (laughs) So Roger Bacon was born somewhere in southwest England, either I think in Somerset or in Gloucestershire between the years 1214 and 1220. More recent sources place his birth, I think, around 1219 or 1220. And he became a brother of the Franciscan order and a scholar of great esteem and controversy. In the modern day, he has this reputation for being an early advocate of something approaching scientific empiricism, the study of nature through observation. Rather than just deductive principles about the divine order. Like maybe, you know, what if Aristotle says something about nature and then you do an experiment and discover that Aristotle is wrong? I think a lot of people might have the tendency to say, like, well, you know, you you must have done something wrong. Aristotle's probably
2: right. Right, yeah. Aristotle's above reproach, right? Yeah.
1: Um, So Bacon studied and wrote on language, on mathematics, on alchemy, astronomy, and optics. You might remember in our Camera Obscura episode of Invention, we talked about how Bacon had read the works of the 11th century Arab scholar Ibn al-Haytham, who described the principle of a pinhole camera for projecting images into a dark. Room. And Bacon picked up on this and conducted experiments based on Al Hytham's writings. He apparently built or at least used a camera obscura chamber for the purpose of safely observing solar eclipses in his lifetime. But he also described the use of spectacles based on glass lenses which were not yet in wide use at the time. Uh, He conducted alchemy experiments and he speculated on the idea of a flying machine. He kind of had a reputation as something of a wonder worker or a wizard And again, this is something that wasn't unheard of for curious scholars of the medieval and early modern period, the the Dr. Faustus kind of image. Robert, you might remember that one of the earliest uh, theories on the authorship of the Voynich manuscript attributes the manuscript to Roger Bacon, though I, I don't think we ever found any good evidence supporting this claim. It seemed mm-hmm. more like people just might have thought, well, who's some messed up wizard who could have created this weird book? Uh, I think the dating of the actual materials put, put the book as much later than, than Bacon's life.
2: Yeah, I think if you could make a better case for John D than you could
1: for Bacon. Right. Uh, but Bacon really did apparently advocate experimentalism, though this doesn't mean he was the kind of like skeptic materialist naturalist you might imagine today. It seems he advocated an empirical or experimental approach to both natural science and alchemy and magic, which, you know, I can see is that might have been a reasonable mindset if you were living in 13th century England. But anyway, he, he produced some important encyclopedias of learning, beginning with his uh, Opus Magus, uh, and following with some other, I think, <laughs> other works that were called like Opus Lesser or Opus Tertiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so w- where does the gunpowder come in? Well, in, in the 1240s, in a couple of his major works, Bacon just straight up described a recipe for making gunpowder as seemingly out of nowhere. So I'm going to cite a passage from the scholar Joseph Needham's work on bacon and gunpowder. In, in a in a book called Science and Civilization in China from Cambridge University Press 1987, where he combines a couple of nearly identical passages about gunpowder from Bacon's Opus Magus and or Maus and uh, Opus Tertium together. But first we should look at how Bacon introduces this section, which is uh, he talks about Greek fire. He writes, Certain of these work by contact only, and so destroy life. Malta, or naphtha, which is a kind of bitumen plentiful in the world, when projected upon a man in armor, burns him up. Similarly, yellow petroleum, i.e. oil produced from the rocks, when properly prepared or distilled— ...burns everything it meets by a consuming fire not extinguishable by water, and only with great difficulty by other things. Certain inventions disturb the hearing to such a degree that if they are set off suddenly at night with sufficient skill, neither cities nor armies can endure them. No thunderclap can compare with such terrifying noises, nor lightning playing among the clouds with such frightening flashes. Hmm and then um and then he goes on so this is the combined two passages about gunpowder itself we have an example of these things that act on the senses in the sound and fire of that children's toy, which is made in many diverse parts of the world, i.e., a device no bigger than one's thumb. From the violence of that salt called saltpeter, together with sulfur and willow charcoal combined into a powder, so horrible a sound is made by the bursting of a thing so small, no more than a bit of parchment containing it, that we find the ear assaulted by a noise exceeding the roar of strong thunder and a flash brighter than the most brilliant lightning especially if one is taken unawares this terrible flash is very alarming if an instrument of large size were used no one could withstand the noise and blinding light and if the instrument were made of solid material the violence of the explosion would be much greater
2: I love this. There are aspects of it that maybe sound like an overstatement of the the power of a, of a simple firework, but he he does get at the heart of it here. Well,
1: yeah. So this this is bacon in this work in the middle of the 13th century, describing a totally accurate recipe for making an explosive charge. Remember, he's got all of the ingredients we talked about in the chemistry section earlier. He's got the fuel there. He's got the sulfur. He's got the saltpeter as the oxidizer. He says you grind them together, you make a powder out of them, and that's how you get this charge. And then, of course, you pack it into to, to a roll of parchment, he says, which parchment being a rather expensive material also seems like maybe not a great use for it. But I don't know what. What else would you use at the time, I guess? But he describes it as some kind of pre-existing children's toy without saying where or when this toy would have been observed and ends with the unmistakable observation that this combustible powder could obviously be used for violence, could be used in warfare. Hmm. So a lot of uh, historians claim that this is the first time knowledge of black powder is acknowledged anywhere in Europe. Uh, But where did Bacon get this idea from? He doesn't claim to have come up with it himself. Instead, he speaks of this toy from other parts of the world without saying where. So there's an interesting question of cross-fertilization of ideas here. Uh, Needham, Joseph Needham, in his book argues that there is ample reason for thinking that Chinese firecrackers and general explosive chemistry would have made their way back to Europe by around the time Bacon was writing. Uh, So Needham writes, quote, This description inescapably suggests to us that a sample of Chinese crackers had come into Roger Bacon's possession and that he knew what the constituents of the mixture were inside them. By 1267, that would have been perfectly possible, for his fellow friars had been traveling back and forth between Western Europe and the Mongol court at Karakoran since 1245, when the Franciscan John of Plano Caprini had been sent as an envoy from Innocent IV, that's Pope Innocent IV, to the great Khan. Uh, and then he he documents plenty of other uh, recorded instances of, of Franciscans and Dominicans and other Europeans traveling back and forth uh, to China to the Mongol court, and says that there's just really no problem imagining that someone maybe maybe knowing of uh, Roger Bacon and saying, hey, he's this kind of like uh, out there wizard guy. He he would enjoy a chemical curiosity from the other side of the world. Let's bring some firecrackers back for uh, for Doctor Wonderful to look at.
2: Yeah, now this would make perfect sense. Everything lines lines up here. Um the, the Chinese to the Mongols, and then uh, via these, uh, these, uh, these uh, traveling um, uh, uh, clergymen back to Europe.
1: But I would say it also seems possible that firecracker chemistry could have entered late medieval Europe through the Arab world, which was a mm-hmm. conduit for a lot of scientific and technological knowledge uh, from both farther east and from the Arab world itself, but also from the lost libraries of antiquity. you know, A lot of knowledge came back into Europe that way.
2: Yeah, and I think that's also where we see more of a direct uh, military stream of ideas right. uh, from China than d- down through uh, uh, through uh, Central Asia and uh, and into the Middle East. And this instance of of Bacon
1: making this first record of of a recipe for gunpowder in Europe is is interesting in how it uh, feeds into how we should think about the role of Roger Bacon in in the history of science and stuff because. Despite his reputation for experimentation, which he did, of course, support in principle, Bacon's actual legacy in the history of knowledge might just as well be understood as one of voraciousness for sources of learning far and wide as much mm. as it was for actual experimentation. I mean, again, the idea is not that Bacon was doing chemistry experiments and discovered how to make gunpowder. He, he probably got a firecracker from somewhere that had been made based on Chinese technology and then either was told or figured out how it worked. But that's a very important role in the history of knowledge as well. Just being like a great collector of ideas from anywhere you can get them.
2: That's right. Just simply being exceedingly (laughs) well-read in a time where where, relatively few individuals were uh, in the grand scheme of of things. Right. So uh,
1: what came of Bacon's publishing on the subject of gunpowder? Well, some sources allege that later in his life, Roger Bacon suffered trouble of the roughly inquisitional sort, that he was imprisoned in the late 1270s by his brothers in the Franciscan order. From what I can tell, the earliest record of this imprisonment comes from a work published in the 1370s. So this would have been around 100 years after the supposed events called Chronicle of the 24 Ministers General of the Franciscans. So I think it's not 100% clear that Bacon really was jailed. We don't have an autobiographical account or anything, Uh, but it is widely alleged. And if he was in fact thrown into prison, the exact cause of this imprisonment is not clear. I've seen it alleged in materials by the Royal Society of chemistry in the UK, that Bacon's description of and possible experiments with gunpowder were what got him into trouble with the church, since, quote, only God could produce thunder and lightning. (laughs) But but I haven't really found any... Evidence that looks very good for this specific technological blasphemy being the cause of his imprisonment. Apparently, the historical record is vague. We're told that it was due to something simply translated as suspected novelties in his teachings. And I guess it's not out of the question that this could refer to technology or something like gunpowder, but it could also just refer to heretical religious beliefs having to do with the end of the world and uh, the church modeling itself on the the idea of the poverty of Christ, or it could have to do with reliance on contemporary prophecies or astrology. Just seems like there are a lot of things you could get in trouble, a lot of kinds of thought crime at the time, and it doesn't necessarily need to be gunpowder that got him into trouble.
2: Right, yeah, there are are so many other established uh, paths to alleged heresy uh, without having to to draw a new line to gunpowder here.
1: But but of course, it wasn't long after Bacon's writings that you really start to see, for example, firearm technology being experimented with in Europe. So so the, the, this was sort of a, a germinal point in the transfer of knowledge about gunpowder to Europe. And then, of course, we've already talked about all the ways that recreational fireworks uh, became popular in the following centuries.
2: It's interesting. Uh, again, we come back to this idea of gunpowder as being one of these prime inventions we can look at and we can see like the way it is used uh, to harm other people and the way it is used as pure amusement, mm-hmm. uh, the dual nature of, uh, of invention, right? Uh, but then also we're, we're talking about how it travels. And so it's, it seems entirely possible that we're looking at a situation where it is via novelty that the technology more readily travels to the West uh, for a number of reasons, one of which being that uh, you know a culture is going to be far less uh, willing to share the secret of its weaponry uh, mm-hmm. but it's in terms of its mere enjoyments uh, that that it that may travel a little easier yeah I can totally see that
1: uh, you know something that's interesting I was reading about uh, fireworks in the contemporary world obviously we know that in the United States people tend to Use a lot of firecrackers and fireworks around the Independence Day, the 4th of July. Uh, but I was reading that even today, the vast majority of the world's fireworks are still made in China. I was reading an article on CNN that reported that uh, as of 2016, over 90% of the fireworks used on American Independence Day were manufactured in China. And there are still all kinds of artisans and craftspeople working in China that like hand
2: make fireworks that that is impressive uh, to th- to think about that because generally when i think of fireworks i think of the you know seemingly mass produced examples that that one finds at firework stores and firework tents right uh yeah and i'm sure i'm sure
1: some fireworks are mass produced by a more automated process but uh but yeah I, I was watching some short documentary segments about actually like companies that still just have basically people making them by hand using sort of hand-cranked machinery and stuff.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. You certainly don't see any here in the States at farmer's markets where someone is like, these are my fireworks. I made these. You can watch me make them. I roll my own uh, Roman candles, etc." <laughs> but maybe I'm just going to the wrong farmer's markets. Who knows? No, this is an interesting point you raise. Uh, Rachel and I were actually talking about this here at the house about whether
1: you, know, you would have like a uh, craft fireworks in the same way you see i don't know the, so much of a artisanal craft movement with other types of products and food items these days
2: yeah and and would you would one trust that more or less i feel like my instinct and maybe this is by virtue of of uh, just not being um, accustomed to it i feel like i would be suspicious of of handmade fireworks <laughs> that just some random stranger made um I don't know. Maybe, again, just because it's something I've I've not encountered before personally. I, I guess it's. I want there to be some sort of like factory standard for my explosives. I guess right. You want
1: to You want to know that it's been through the inspections or something. Yeah. Isn't it weird that our intuitions sometimes work that way? You think like, oh, a mass-produced item that that seems safer. That seems like uh, <laughs> that seems like it, it's been through a process.
2: I would love to hear from anyone out there who makes their own fireworks or knows someone who does for any uh, insight into this because just a. Uh, I haven't researched this uh, in full, but. Just just glancing around, it looks like there are advocates out there uh, of, uh, for making your own fireworks and, uh, and, and even doing so safely. Uh, but this is just a whole world I, I have no exposure to. Well, uh, Quick liability check. We're not advising people to do that. <laughs> no, no. I'm, yeah, we're not advising you to make your own fireworks. Just if you, are, if you already have knowledge of this world, uh, let us know about it. I would like to learn more. Uh, I would not like to, uh, to buy any of them, though. You know what
1: I want to know from an expert on fireworks is whether pumped stars are stars that have been pumped using a star pump or not.
2: Yeah, and then how do you make the star pump? Do you have, do you, is there some, like, Do you, is it made from, like, residue from pumping a star? I don't know. could all be interconnected. The star pump sounds like a wonderful science fiction device. It does, yeah. Some sort of crazy um, Kardashev Level 2 uh-huh. technology. Yeah. Bust out the star pump. But anyway, uh, that is it for fireworks uh, for this episode. Hopefully, we uh, you know provided some additional insight into the the, the origin of fireworks and uh, how this technology then took off in uh, Western Europe as well. Uh, so, a little more to think about. Then, if you find yourself staring up at the sky in the next. Uh, Few months in the next uh, some point over the next year, and uh, watching these various colorful, uh, glittering explosions take place. uh, You know, understanding what what is chemically going on, and also what is uh, culturally and historically going on before you. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, you can help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Uh, those are the, the the three acts of kindness you can do to help out the show. But also, just tell other human beings about us. Next time you need to recommend a podcast, uh, you know, maybe mention an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, that uh, tickled your fancy. That's right. Be our star pumps.
1: <laughs> uh, anyway, huge. Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.